Hi everyone, it's Artie from, from the Human Chapters. I'll tell you a little bit about the Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with a past, present and future. These narratives constitute of a number of chapters across a lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each one of us has a story to tell. An acknowledgement to country, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are. We pay respect to their tribal elders past and present and emerging. We celebrate the continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of their ancestors. And today we are going to be speaking to John um, and this chapter is titled John Holt's Journey at Cactus Country, Australia's Largest Cactus Garden. I'll pass on the floor to John to introduce himself. Go for it. Hi everyone and thanks for having me Artie. I'm John from Cactus Country, so um, sort of like the CEO, marketing, salesperson here. Um, we manage a team of around 12 people now. It's a family business that I joined oh, about 10 or 12 years ago. I came back from uni and started back into the business. Um, so back in those days, the business was very different. We were doing vegetable farming and um, running the tourist attraction on the side. Uh, these days, things have changed quite dramatically. I'm also the uh, chair of the Chukamima Tourism and yeah, I think that's a, that's a general brief of my beginnings. Beautiful. John, before we move into the cactus country, um, tell, you mentioned it's a family business. Tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up. Great. I had a very different childhood to most people I know in that um, we always had backpackers on the farm. So we had a, a backpacker hostel from when I was a a very young child and you know god um some of the backpackers were a bit wild and you sort of uh you got an education very early on in life uh i was also during primary school and my early high school days bullied quite a lot so um coming home and having a tourist attraction and meeting and greeting tourists and interacting with backpackers was probably a huge saving grace for me because i then felt like I had connections outside of school and I wasn't so reliant on um, trying to fit in with my peers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I guess school was never my strength. Um, in primary school, I remember in grade two, they gave me a book and they used to put stickers in it. Um, if I just paid attention. So if I just paid attention in class, they would give me a sticker. And when I got home, I could like ride the motorbike or play on the computer because I would literally sit in class, stare at the window all day and get to the end of the day and the bell would go and I would just go home. So I'd just like turn up, sit there all day, go home. And my brain, I think I just dreamt all day. Like, I think I'm a great daydreamer. And yeah, I was just like building stories and ideas in my head. And that was sort of primary school for me in a wrap. And then I sort of followed that through into high school as well. I just passed, like I'm, um, not dumb i'm intelligent enough that i can learn information when i want to but i just didn't really care about anything that i was being taught at school so i just didn't pay attention and didn't try um i left high school uh decided to go to university so i studied myotherapy in uh, melbourne for one year and just i realized study is just not for me like i'm a self self-learner or self-teacher and 
I need to learn at my own pace and I need to learn the things that I'm interested in when I'm interested in them. And so I quit uni, got a job in a factory driving forklift because obviously growing up on a farm, you learn how to drive every bit of equipment under the sun. Uh, and so, yeah, I did that for a few months and was just bored out of my brain. Mum and dad were about to head overseas. So I, um, I hooked onto a three month travel overseas. We saw all the best gardens in the world. It was massive. It was a real eye opener. Um, you know, I traveled to places like Mexico and um, America and Hawaii and all around Europe. And it was just incredible. So when I got back, obviously felt like I owed mum and dad a bit of money. So I came back and, and started working on the farm again. Um, you know, we, we built that up. We, um, vegetables is a pretty tough um, industry. <clears throat> you know, you'd be up early talking with the agents in the morning, trying to sell product. Um, you'd be up getting all of the workers started, you know, in, a, in our peak season, we'd have around 40 backpackers. Um, so we, our hostel would be, you know, packed to the brim. Um, and every, every day was a hard slog. And when they all knocked off, you'd also have jobs like preparing the fields for the next planting and, you know, just never ending. And I guess growing up, I always looked at what mum and dad were doing and thought, there's got to be a better way to do things. There's got to be an easier way to make money. Like I saw other people's parents working way less hours and having way more money and way more time. And I just thought, this is, uh, this doesn't make sense to me. Like there's, there's just got to be a better way. So I think from a young age, I always thought I want to work out how to make money because I never want to have to feel that kind of financial stress again. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Wow. So I'm going to reel back a bit um, yeah. and go back to your primary school. So there are three parts to my question. One mm -hmm. is about bullying. What was that actually, what was that like? What happened mm. to you? Um, the second part is why was school quite difficult in terms of the learning? Mm. And the third part is what were you daydreaming about? <laughs> Great. Uh, look, I think bullying comes in all forms. And I think, uh, you know, I was a bit of a loner. I think from a young age, I was quite mature. I didn't want to talk about the things that kids my age were talking about. So I think that threw them off. I think the other part was, um, yeah, I just, I just struggled to really get along with kids my age. Um, and, I, and I just probably wasn't the kind of kid who was willing to just like go with the flow and, and be a part of the conversation just for the sake of it. Like if it bored me, I just had no time for it. Um, so I was probably a little bit autistic in that sense, maybe. I don't know. Just thinking back, I, I would like sit on my own quite a lot and just be in my own head doing my own thing. And I think maybe kids just thought I was weird and I probably was. Um, but... I think uh, the, the types of bullying, I mean, in primary school, it was more just exclusion. Like I just couldn't form good friendships. So I think it was just uh, purely just exclusion. Like we don't want to be your friend kind of thing. You know, that really petty sort of primary school, um, finding it hard to just fit in with the crowd. And then in high school, I did this stupid thing when I left um, primary school and went to high school. They asked me, would you like to be put in with your friends? Like, because I had some friends at primary school, just not, you know, like not people that I used to hang out with all the time and get to catch up with regularly. But it was sort of like the question was, do you want to be in a class with them or do you want to be 
in a in a new class with new people and I was I went for the new class with new people and it was probably the worst decision I made because I just didn't know anyone in high school and they put me in like what they considered at Cobram secondary to be like the bad kids class like the ones that didn't fit in and so I got thrown into the wolf pack and I was just this um you know I was tall I've been I'm, I'm about six foot nine so I was always like the tallest kid I think by about year nine I was the tallest kid in high school um and so yeah I just I guess because I didn't get put in with a group of people I knew and I wasn't confident in making friends because I didn't feel like I had those skills I just didn't fit in and I just didn't get along with everybody so I I kind of just loaned my way through school and you know I, like I'd hang out with the nerds and and kids that you know I had a bit more in common with but I never really had what I would consider to be like a best mate growing up it was just always just felt like a little bit, you know, on the outside, like not included. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So that's bullying. Um, yes. What was the, the, second part? <laughs> the second part was what was specifically difficult in terms of learning? Mm. Uh, I'm just a dreamer. I just, even now, like I'll be in a meeting. Uh, what's a good example? My, at Chukamoama, we had the annual general meeting where I was being um, voted in as chair. And when people got up to talk, my eyes just glazed over. So I just, you know, and, and I had to like almost pinch myself and be like, no, you've got to pay attention. You know, you've got a responsibility here. You're going to need to be able to, to focus and, and pay attention and, you know, like be able to talk about what was talked about today, you know, like take this seriously. Yeah. And like, I was just battling my own brain, you know, it was like, just pay attention, you can do this. Um, so you can imagine what it would have been like for me in, in primary school and high school, because I just wasn't self aware enough to even know I was doing it, like everything just tuned out, I was like, meditating all day. What? Um, like, just gone, like, I would stare out the window, and I swear the day would just go by, like, I don't, I don't remember really what happened from the start of the day to the end of the day, like it was just a blur. So I don't know, diet, nutrition, I really played around with that a lot as I got older and that helped a lot. Like sugar is the devil for me. I had really bad adult acne. So if I went to high school and had like a donut from the cafe, I would just erupt in pimples. And so I quickly learned diet is super important. Like I'm super sensitive to sugar and certain um, certain products, so I have to really avoid them. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So that's, the, that's the learning part. Uh, I think once I figured out the nutritional piece and was motivated to learn certain subjects I was interested in, I found it really easy to learn. And, well, I, I don't think that I'd be in the position I'm in today if I wasn't capable of learning what I've learned. Absolutely. Hmm. And then the third part was the actual dreaming part do you remember where your mind took you during the I remember the walks home from school down my long driveway um, they used to drop me at the front gate and on my way home because I'd been so bored all day my brain would just be um, like that's probably when I started to wake up was at the end of the day uh, and then I'd be walking down the track and I remember like creating all these like superhero kind of um, ideals in my head you know like ah. Uh, um, imagine if I was like a superhero and I had all this superhuman strength and I could beat up all the bullies and like save the world kind of stuff. 
So, you know, it was really like silly stuff, but I think that's just where my head was. I was probably trying to create scenarios where I could succeed in life. Um, I think success has always been really important to me. A lot of my daydreaming would have been around, you know, vision, visions of the future. I did this, um, I did this course with Bob Proctor when I was about 15 or 16. And I think that was a real turning point. It was like a three-day conference in Melbourne. Uh, and it kind of changed the way that I viewed the world. And so my daydreams took a different form. All of a sudden, when I was walking down the driveway, I'd be thinking, imagine what it would look like if there was bumper to bumper traffic coming down the driveway and the car park was overflowing into the front paddocks. And we had so many people that we'd have to build a new car park and we'd have to expand the gardens and build bigger things and make it better. And so that's what I used to then start to visualize probably in the later high school days. And then uh, I just remember I, I had quite the challenge with my mental health as well. So throughout all that time of being on the farm and uh, working really long hours and you know, being put under a lot of pressure and a lot of stress from mum and dad to, to achieve certain results for the farm. I remember, um, you know, just the ups and downs and the crashes almost of like, not extreme depression, but I remember being quite depressed and, and not knowing how to sort of get my head out of that space. So I'd, I'd avoid work with watching TV shows and trying to escape and, you know, stuff like that, which I'm sure is probably pretty normal, but um, you know, avoiding avoiding work in order to escape it. <laughs> yeah, the pressures of farming. It's mm. we don't give it enough credit, and we can see what's happening all around the world. Is surely yeah, there's a better way in which. Yeah. Well, since I got into tourism, um, one thing that I keep thinking about is okay, we've created a solution to farming for us, which was, you know, dad built this enormous cactus garden, which has now become quite, quite iconic for our region. And we get I don't know, around 32,000 visitors a year now. So it's, it's a pretty significant business now. We employ around 12 people. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a good team and we'll, we'll just keep building it from here. I think it's really exciting. But in terms of farming, I keep thinking that the tourism value add or the value add of products and preserves and things it's so much more profitable than just farming. Uh, you know, what we used to do with zucchinis and squash for us was unsustainable. I mean, we had our costs as low as we could get them and we still found it hard to make money. So I think, yeah, there's there's better ways to make money. And, and I keep thinking about how tourism and agri-tourism agri could work for a lot of businesses in our region. Okay. Um, so, John, with the Cactus Garden, where, how was that idea conceived? What, what was the journey? Mm. So as a kid, it was a, it was a quarter acre in the backyard. And you can see in my background how big some of the plants are now. Yeah. But the garden, it was just tiny. When I was a kid, they were just, you know, they'd come from a collection in South Australia. And they're all small plants, you know, less than 30 centimetres, all of them. Um, so that tiny little quarter acre then grew and when the plants got as big as they are in the picture behind me then we had to split them out into the areas of origin 
And it was during that process that we started to expand as well. So I think it went from like a quarter acre to five acres probably in the first five or six years. Yeah. And then and then we just kept expanding it. Dad would like go out there and and develop all of this sort of land where he was going to plant things. So I'd have a BMX track for a couple of weeks and then he'd start planting cacti and I wouldn't be able to ride it anymore. Um, and so it just grew over the years. It's now 12 acres and we've put another eight acres in. So it'll be a 20 acre garden in no time. Um, but yeah, that was sort of how it started. Yeah. And um, how long, tell us a bit more about the journey when you do grow cacti and stuff how long do, does it take to grow um hmm. when you see yeah tourists sort of being a bit curious about the garden the purpose yeah. of the garden yeah it's it's been a really interesting journey so when I started doing social media for the business I don't know like eight or nine years ago maybe more now I remember this backpacker he was like oh why aren't you on Instagram you know I was on Facebook and I thought oh that'll be fine I was like, why aren't you on Instagram? You know, this is a really visual place. And I was like, what's Instagram? You know, like how naive. And he showed me and I went, oh, this is cool. How does it work? So we did our first post together and he showed me how to use hashtags. And my first photo of this flowering yucca, I think it was, got like 70 likes. And I went like, what is this? So I think we were super early on the platform and that was a, a huge benefit. Uh, so we grew like crazy in those first few years and that really helped, you know, create the, the platform that we built on. So we've got around 50,000 followers on Instagram now and over 100,000 on Facebook. And so I was really keen. I thought this is our ticket out of Dodge. You know, if we can get social media to work for us, then people will come from far and wide. Dad always thought that if he built the garden big enough and, you know, made the landscape amazing, then that would be, you know, the wow factor would create the conversation that would get people to come. And I kept saying, yeah, but people still have to know where we are and how to get here. So we've still got to create a great social presence. And so I think the combination of the two working together. So dad, in terms of what he can do creatively is just incredible. And then what I was able to do in backing that up with social media and, you know, kept redesigning the website, redesigning the website. You'd be like, why do you keep doing this? You keep spending all this money. And, and I was like, don't worry, it'll pay off. It'll pay off. And they didn't believe me. So, you know, I had to fight tooth and nail to get budget to do marketing. And, yeah. and now they're like, oh, man, you're absolutely right. You know, I'm so glad that you did it all. And yeah, now we're doing things like weddings and photo shoots, like Samsung came and shot here. Um, wow. We had a car park with three sort of, um, uh, what do they call those big bands um, to, for the celebrities to be in. And, you know, they did all this film. They, um, every, everyone who turned up, they put a sticker over their phone camera so that they couldn't photograph behind the scenes. And it was just one of those incredible experiences where you just think like, how are we achieving this in this tiny town called Strathmerton, three hours from Melbourne? Um, you know, then people would fly in from China to get engaged in the garden and fly home or, you know, another couple that came to Australia for three days and we were day number two. It was like Phillip Island, Cactus Country, Sydney, go home. And we were just like, this is just bizarre. So, um, yeah, social media is... Uh, so powerful you just you can't under underestimate what it's capable of absolutely mm. 
And John, why why cactus? Mm, good question. When dad was young, so probably around five years old, he thinks he started propagating cacti with his dad. So his dad was a gardener. Uh, they used to enter a lot of flower and garden shows and his dad was quite good. He won a lot of awards. Uh, but dad being the eldest of six, he was the he was the head gardener. So his dad would put him in charge and he had to make sure that he rallied the other kids and got the gardens weeded and all looking pristine for the garden shows. So I think from a young age, dad actually enjoyed that. It wasn't work for him. Um, he probably um, got a lot of joy from um, from those sort of formative years and, and that's sort of what really inspired him to want to do it when he was older. Uh, he went to England. He was living over there for a while and he saw the Chelsea Flower and Garden Show. And when he came back to Australia, he said to his dad, I really want to start a public garden. Um, do you want to help me? And his dad didn't want to. He said, we're too far from Melbourne. Nobody's going to come. Uh, dad said, no, I'll, I'll make this work. Dad's really determined, like, He's the kind of guy that if you, he's like a bull at a red flag. If you tell him he can't do something, he's going to go out and prove you wrong. Um, and if he can't prove you wrong, he will not admit that he's wrong. He will just keep trying. Like, even if it takes him 20, 30 years, he will absolutely prove you wrong on something. It's just his personality. So he's got this extreme creativity and then he's got this extreme dedication to the outcome. And so all our friends and family said we were crazy and we probably were. Um, but you know, 32 years later, this is this is a really successful business. Um, and if he had have listened to his critics, he would have stopped a long time ago. So there's a lesson in that, I'm sure. Um, what was the question again? Sorry. Um, why cactus? Mm, why cacti? So yeah, I think because he grew up with the plants and he saw the Chelsea Flower Show, I think that was a big part of it. He he really has a love for cacti. And he really has a love for the structure. You can see the, the plants in the background and, and how they sort of grow big with arms on them. They're very different to any other plant. And the beauty of cacti is you can, you can cut an arm off and propagate it. Um, and also some of the really interesting things, Dad's got a, a hothouse now dedicated to hybridization, which is where you cross pollinate plants in order to create new ones. Uh, we're trying to get colored flowers in tall plants, which is really rare. And we're also trying to breed, you know, really interesting cacti that grow quickly. So original plants from the wild, you know, some species that are quick growing might only still, might still only grow a few inches a year. Yeah. Uh, he's got plants that are four years old that are over a metre tall. So, you know, we're talking about um, extremely quick growing plants. And when you grow a batch of seed in the same batch of seed, you might have one plant that's long spine with a fat body and you might have another plant that's a really skinny body with no spines um, it's the variation that you get when you grow seed is what's really exciting as a plant breeder absolutely mm. oh that's beautiful thank you um okay. i'll take you back a little bit when and this is back to your childhood you mm. never wanted or rather not never but you didn't want to feel the burden of too many hours of work and um, not getting paid enough for it. Mm. When, when you conceived that thought, what happened next? Yeah, that's interesting. I'd probably, I'd probably structure it differently just in terms of how I thought. It was more, I think I was just exhausted. I think that 
you know, I really wanted to do the work and I wanted to be good at my job, but I would just hit a brick wall. It was seven days a week and it was never ending. And there was never any light at the end of the tunnel and there was never any sort of pat on the back. You know, dad's a real, um, he's got a huge work ethic and he's really intelligent. I think he just expects everybody to be as good as him without any education. Uh, and so I didn't really get any mentoring, you know, it was just, you're expected to know these things. Like I was hiring and firing at the age of like 20, 21. And, you know, we're talking big crews of people and I'd never done it before. I didn't know how to hire anyone. I didn't know how to fire anyone. It was horrible. Like it broke my heart. I'm a real, I'm a real people lover. So, you know, I found that extremely difficult. I think a lot of the things that I had to do growing up kind of just broke my soul a little bit because it was so, um, it was so against my personality type and, and, and who I was about. So I, I really struggled with that. Um, but there was also this other side of the coin, which was, you know, like being a son and wanting to, you know, get my dad's affection. I think that really pushed me through some of the hard times because I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to win this battle. I'm going to prove my worth in the business and prove that I'm worthy. And so I just kept working at it. Like I would hit these brick walls and I would, you know, break down and just be demoralized. And then I would just, come back and try harder and so it's just I repeated that cycle like I mean I would come in and see mum mum and I are like I don't know we just have this incredible relationship I can just tell her anything and she gets me and you know that was really important to me when I was young because I needed that counseling but I would come in and I'd just be so frustrated you know I'd be in tears saying I can't do this like I've tried everything and I can't succeed and she would just listen to me and nod along and then she would give me some great piece of advice and I'd go out all pepped up again, ready to go. And so, you know, like that, that was kind of just a cycle that repeated itself throughout my sort of 20s, I would say. And then as I got into my later 20s, I think I started to realise that I had to learn how to do that for myself and not be so reliant on others to, um, to manage my emotional highs and lows. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um. And we've, we've talked about your dad's passions in a sense, his creativity, mm. his determination. Um, through your journey, where do your passions lie? Oh, good question. I've got a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> I, love, um, I love people. So um, when I was asked to do this podcast, there was never a question in my mind that I would say yes. Um, and... I love helping people in business. I think that's a huge passion of mine. I love mentoring people. Uh, I think that comes from like wanting to be accepted maybe. Like I love it when people listen to my, my advice, go out and do it and get the same success that I've gotten in life. I think I find that extremely rewarding. So that's what drew me to um, get involved with tourism and volunteer in tourism organisations. I just, I wanted to help those communities. I wanted to help other small family businesses get to a point where they could be financially free. Um, and so that's, that's probably the big drawing card for me. Like I just love helping people succeed in life. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Beautiful. And so, so then the next question, what is success for you? It's never ending. I don't, 
I don't see any necessarily see any like particular outcome for me in life. Um, you know, when I when I fantasize about what I want to do in life, it's like a big reason why I want to make money is to give more back to my community. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how to help my community at each step of the way, because I think a lot of people must think in their mind, oh, when I'm a multimillionaire, then I'll be able to give back. And I just think you can give back at any stage of life. You don't need to have financial wealth. That's not the only way. So, so right now, a lot of our income goes back into developing the business. And so the thing that I can give back is like being the chair of a Chikamaima tourism. It's a voluntary role, but it's a really important one because the right person in that seat can make a huge difference. Um, you know, creating strong relationships with our stakeholders and with our members is something that's hugely important to me. And so I take that role very, very seriously. Um, and yeah, I just think, I don't know what the future is for me. Like I see myself building cactus country up to a point where I can hire a really great team of managers and, and build a, you know, a beautiful restaurant here and have a farm to plate experience and, and have other tourist attractions attached to it. We've got 150 acres, you know, I've just bought my first accommodation unit to put on the farm. So um, it's got a skylight so people can check out the stars at night, which I think is a really great feature of, you know, being so remote. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've got, I've got a lot of vision for cactus country. And then, you know, personally, I've got a lot of vision of um, investments and things that I want to do outside of cactus country. And I think that's probably something that I've learned more about myself in recent years, which is separating the two because uh, cactus country success, um, I used to tie that directly to me, like as in um, the success of cactus country was my personal success. Whereas now I see things differently. Cactus country is a business and it's something that I'm hugely passionate about, but I can't tie all my self-worth to something that I don't have full control over. Um, so I had to find self-worth outside of that as well and outside of other people's kind of um, affirmations of what I'm doing in life. And uh, I don't know, that probably took me longer to work out than I would have liked. Um, I really felt like other people's sort of envy was what motivated me a lot of the time. And I, I think that's really unhealthy. <laughs> Fair enough. That's amazing. Um, and a bit about your role in the Achuka Moama tourism. Mm -hmm. What do you do? What, yeah. What do I do? Great oh. question. <laughs> so, so you can imagine um, we've got a we've got a board. We've got just an incredible board. Uh, we've got some. We've got uh, Renee Oberon, um, who's incredibly strategic. So. Uh, Hugh Melville, our lawyer. Um, so he's he's a he's a lawyer by trade, but he also sits on our board and helps us with legal matters. Um, we did have an accountant. We don't at the moment. We've got some really great industry people um, who are strong in marketing, and we've got some. Uh, so Sean, he's uh, got Maidens in, which is a huge accommodation in Moama. So we've got we we try to have a board that is really representative of the community um, in tourism and ecom. And my job is not to be the smartest person in the room, which I'm by far in that direction. I'm not the smartest person by far. 
and but so my job is to draw out everybody's opinions and draw out everybody's ideas and sort of scan the faces in the room and see when somebody wants to talk and make sure that I draw out everything that's needed in the conversation to then make great decisions. Um, and then I think it's just about building relationships. So for me, when I joined the organisation, what I really wanted to achieve, which I could see we were struggling with in the past was, you know, we've got two councils that fund us, so Maloma and, and Echuca Council. And I wanted to create a, the vision that I have for the future is that we all work really harmoniously together that we build a strategic vision together and that we act as one town and one community. And that's really hard because you've got two government bodies and everybody's got ideas and, you know, they're inspired by different things. And so that's the huge challenge. It, it seems like really simple and really easy, but it's actually extremely challenging. And if I can achieve that in my time there, then I'll consider that to be a huge success. Yeah, no, that's... Mm. Cool. Um, and again, as usual, I've been asking you questions and taking you back in time. But yeah. my question is about your three-day course with Bob Proctor. And mm. that seemed to be quite a pivotal moment in your life. Massively. Yeah. Mm. What was that about? Why did you go to that course? And what came out of it? So growing up, we were really poor. And so every now and then somebody would come to us with a business idea and mum and dad being who they were, were like always looking for ways to make more money. And so um, the company was called New Ways. It was a network marketing company that we um, decided was a, a, a great thing to get involved in. And I was probably around 15, 16 years old at the time. And in part of being a part of that, it was you would get provided with these courses and opportunities, things that you could go and attend um, at hugely discounted prices. And I, I couldn't even tell you what the cost of it was. We were in this room, like this massive convention center in Melbourne. There was a big slide show up on the, on the wall in front of us all. And, you know, we we're doing this program with a facilitator and, you know, I was the youngest in that room by far. Like I, if I was 15, 16, the next youngest person might've been in their mid thirties. And so, you know, you could imagine what it was like. Everybody was pepped up. It was like an Anthony Robbins kind of thing, I imagine. Mm -hmm. And just to have that um, kind of information exposure of, you know, visualising where you want to be in life, um, how to achieve your goals, how to set goals. Um, like, I'm sure that most of your audience has probably read a motivational book in their life that's impacted them in some way. I was just so young and so moldable and I didn't have any preconceived ideas of how to achieve success in life. And so I didn't have any blockages in the way in terms of like just absorbing everything that I heard. And so I think subconsciously it all just got shoved into my brain. And from that point forward, I just started to think differently about how to achieve things in life. Like you've got to set goals, you need affirmations. If you don't write it down, you don't achieve it. Um, and then I got sort of hooked on the whole, you know, motivational people. So um, Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. Napoleon Hill, the science of getting rich. I mean, if there was a book out there that was worth reading on sort of human psychology and success, I've read it. Um, I just eat it for breakfast, lunch and dinner, like all day. I'm walking around with headphones, listening to podcasts and audiobooks and 
you know, I'd be in the tractor for eight hours a day. I'd be listening to Napoleon Hill's live lectures on Spotify. Like I just, I wanted it all. <laughs> so that was a pivotal moment for me because it started to make me think differently and it started to make me realize that I could, if I set my mind to something then I could really achieve it. And that was really important to me. I wanted to be successful in, in a sense, yeah. Absolutely. And what does today, having mm. had all of that knowledge and experience and application of that knowledge, um, what does goal setting look like for you today? Um, I do it at about a million miles an hour. Yeah. Um, you know, it's become so ingrained in my psychology that it's almost an unthought of process. Yeah. Uh, just the realization that the brain is just so powerful. Um, when you tune your brain into opportunity, it will find it. Uh, you know, The Secret was a really interesting book, but you can't just wish something and, and think that it's gonna happen. There has to be action behind the thought and there has to be feeling behind it. Um, and then I think as you go along, you realize that financial success or certain material things don't actually make you happy, but it's um, you have to love the process. You have to love being in the trenches and, and doing the work required to get to where you want to go. Like I'm sure for you, Artie, this is not hard work. Like I'm sure for you interviewing all these amazing people that you get to interview is like one of the most joyous things that you get to do in life. When you find an occupation or a career that gives you that kind of buzz, you're on the right track. Then goal setting is more a formality um, and less of a less of a chore. People try to set goals, I think, that aren't necessarily unachievable, but they're not motivated to do them. Like this whole New Year's Eve, you know, New Year resolutions thing. It's it's kind of a bit silly. We set these unrealistic expectations like we're not going to drink alcohol or eat sugar or we're going to exercise every day or whatever it's just okay that's great but you know there's people out there who you know decided that in July and they're still keeping up with it why why does a date need to be significant to start why do we start things on a Monday why not just start now um, and so I think all of that plays a part when you when you psychologically decide that you're going to do something that's very very powerful yeah, no, that's really good. Um, mm. And my other question is, you talked about being or the being poor growing up and mm. wanting to have financial freedom. How did you mm. change that story of money and what money meant to you and all of that sort of, um, I suppose, yeah, just, going, I want more money um, sort of a thing. To be honest, money is still a big driver for me. Yeah. But it's changed its format in the past. I wanted money to prove that I was successful. Like yeah. when I got bullied, I always thought, you know, one day I'm going to be this like rich millionaire and I'm going to show you kind of thing. It was really vindictive. It was my motivation for success in life was coming from a really dark place like I really wanted to prove people wrong which is fine because that got me to the next stage of of education and learning and understanding and there's probably still an element of that there because um 
because I find that it is just for me anyway, sometimes I can use that to my advantage, but I do it because I'm aware of it now versus the way I used to do it in the past was really dark. Um, now I'm motivated by success because there's like a goal and a vision behind it, which is to help the community and help do something different. Like I don't like seeing all of the bad things that happen in the world and feeling powerless to it. And I think, um, you know, like vegans and vegetarians and feminists and, you know, there's, um, there's so many people out there who are making huge sacrifices in their personal life for a, for a vision that they see of a future that's brighter and they're, and they're working so hard to achieve something that they're really passionate about. And for me, it's kind of, I see it the same way, but for me, it's about building a culture and a team here at Cactus Country. And in doing that and helping local, I can help global. Um, you know, that's just, I've always loved that saying of help local, help global. I think if you can, if you can do something incredible in your own backyard, then you're influencing the next generation of people who will go out and be altruistic in their life, wherever they end up. And so, yeah, I love, I love mentoring and I love helping people achieve things that they don't think are possible because I just feel like maybe one of those people will be the person who changes the world or whatever. Do you know what I mean? I just think that it's all, everything's sort of tied together in life. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Um, and to wrap up our conversation, first of all, has there been any question or anything you've wanted to say, John, that I haven't alluded to, asked or, yeah, delved into? I just want to say, I think you, you do such a great job of interviewing people. I've watched some of your previous podcasts and I just think, you know, to be doing this in the first place is brave. And I think you just do such an incredible job and I just... I want you to know, like, keep it up. There's lots of amazing people out there. You'll have many more great interviews and who knows one day you might be in the New York Times or something like shining light. It'll be great. But like, I truly do mean, you know, each one of us has such Absolutely. a such a unique story and we might mm. not think it's unique because we are in it and we're mm. experiencing it and it's our story, but, and we judge it for that but yeah. everyone's experience is so different and it's just nice to know about it and where people are coming from and connecting at yeah. that level. Totally agree. I mean, I grew up with backpackers. So grew up with people from all walks of life. Some people who came in were already hugely successful in their own personal careers and lives and or had, you know, incredible educations in incredibly interesting fields. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up surrounded by, just the most amazing people. And like on the weekend, we had two multimillionaires here um, chatting about, you know, what they do in life. One's a gem and crystal collector, one's an art collector. And, you know, we're talking about just mega, mega wealth. And, you know, just to be able to sit with them and, and ask them about their lives and, and find out what they do and how they achieve success in life. I just don't feel like I would have had these opportunities necessarily had I not stayed here at Cactus Country and worked through all of those hard times. Like there were so many times I could have given up, but to be where I am now and to live the life I live, I just feel extremely grateful and lucky. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. um what's your vision for a utopic world oh i don't know whether it exists um a utopic world wow um oh i just think people have to people have to stop being so aggressive and and hating each other so much like if you don't get along with somebody just let them be <laughs> um i don't know it's it's a, it's a difficult question because it's so broad. I think the education system in Australia needs fixing. Um, I think if we could start at the education level, that would absolutely have a dramatic effect on our communities. Um, and then I think, God, health and nutrition has to be a huge part of it. I think educating people on the, the food, you know, well, foods in general and and how to be aware of whether you're um, you may be uh, reacting to something in your diet that's causing you to to have um, mental health issues as well. I think that was a big piece that I learned um, that changed my life dramatically. Was the nutrition puzzle in mental health was massive. I think there's little things like that. Well, they're seemingly little, but you know, um, I listen to a lot of Gary Vee and. I imagine that some people love him and some people hate him because he's so hyper, he's so high energy. But I just find that listening constantly to somebody who's so energetic and passionate really keeps me mentally in check and keeps me appreciating the good things I have in life. And I think gratitude is just a huge piece. So in a utopic world, people would have more gratitude, they'd meditate more, they'd chill out more and, and you know, like it'd be really hippie, like love each other kind of stuff. <laughs> Um, and the last question is three to five main key takeaways for our audience listening to this mm. conversation. I think goal setting um, is just hugely important in life. I think it's one thing to think about things in your head. It's another thing to write it down. I think also being socially accountable Growing up, I would tell my friends what I wanted to achieve because that would guilt me into doing it. Um, so doing things like that, I think even though it causes stress, it's also, if you really want to achieve something like socially pressure yourself into it, it, it really works. Um, five key takeaways. Um, look, I guess if you've got a younger audience as well, like imagine that there's some kids that are in high school or in a in a workplace with a bullying culture i think like um there's been some really interesting historical figures that have gone through really really hard things and it's possible to be in an environment that's really negative and stay strong and so i think that's something worth delving into if you're experiencing that the other thing i would say is like the people that the five closest people are going to influence your life the most so if you're around people that are negative, that are telling you you can't achieve something, then that's exactly what you'll get in life. Um, surround yourself with people who tell you you can do things that motivate you and, like, that's a big part of success. Uh, what are we up to, three or...? Uh, we're up to four. <laughs> okay, one more. Um, I think that whole piece of success is really interesting. I think, you know, in the lead-up to 30 years of age... I thought I had to be settled down and have kids and have a family and the social pressures really got to me and it really made me depressed and anxious. And 
you know, I think we're living through a totally different time to our parents' generation where we don't have to get married and have kids, that that's not like, I mean, some of our parents would have had to have gotten married to get out of home, you know, like that's how you became independent. We live in a totally different world now and the same pressures that they had on them that made them miserable, we don't have to follow suit and be miserable just because they had to be. So I think understanding yourself, like if marriage and kids is important to you, kudos, go for it. If it's not, that's fine too. Um, I think get to know yourself, like get comfortable listening to your thoughts and understanding who you are as a person and what's important to you. And then don't try and please everybody for the sake of your own unhappiness. Like get out of that trap. It's just bullshit. Like don't do it. It's not worth it. If you're if you're an attractive person, marrying an attractive person because you feel like you have to marry an attractive person, then that's silly. Like you want to be in love with somebody that you're in love with, regardless of how you're seen in society for it. Like just building that bridge and getting to that point, I think is really important in life. Absolutely. And it just goes to show like being being comfortable in your own skin and mm. when yeah, it's almost a shield against what society has to say for you because yeah. you, you're you doomed if you do, you're doomed if you don't. Like that's just sometimes the way the world works, but if you're comfortable in your own skin, then yeah. Absolutely. It's the most important thing. If you love yourself, then you will be the most attractive person in the world because that's what it's all about. Like as, as hippie and as weird as it sounds, like, people hate themselves and then they go out into the world and think that somebody else's love and affection is going to complete them. And it just doesn't, it's not how it works. Absolutely. It's just not. <laughs> yeah. True. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. thank you so very much for taking the time out, John. It's no absolutely an honor to have had this conversation with you. And I know I say it's an honor every time, but it truly is. It's not easy to, for the person being interviewed to yeah go through all of these questions quite easily I love it. <laughs> <laughs> no it's really really um such an honor so thank you very much and for anyone that's listening feel free to share this conversation you never know you know how people are going to connect to it and yeah what they might connect to so great and if anybody wants to find me, ask me any questions, um, john at cactuscountry.com.au or you can find me on Instagram, cactusfarmerjohn or you can just message Cactus Country's social media pages and I'll link up there. And we'll have the links, um, yeah, when the uh, this conversation is uploaded as well. Great. Thanks so much for your time, Artie. Appreciate it. Very welcome.